0: Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 Podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of evolution 2 8020 sales and marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I'm here with John Lennox, and I've been admiring John for a very long time, and actually today, met him for the first time in person and we're at Oxford University. Um, And um, John has just written a book called Cosmic Chemistry, which um, I received uh, a manuscript of over a year ago. And I greatly admire it because he boldly takes on the intersection between Evolutionary biology and the big religious questions. In fact, he tackles the big questions much more forcefully than I do in my own book. And he also has some really wonderful scholarship about the latest biology, which Evolution 2.0 listeners would be familiar with. And so I'm very honored, John, thank you for coming here. And could you just give a little snapshot of growing up in Northern Ireland and becoming a mathematician. Just give people a little bit of an idea of who you are.
1: Sure. Um, and, uh, in my turn, I'm honored to have you in my college here at Greek Templeton at Oxford. And it's just been wonderful to see the kind of ideas you're putting out in the public space. Not only the ideas, but the attitude with which you put them out there. For people to discuss, I sense, I really do sense, a kindred spirit.
0: Yes, very much.
1: I, that kindred spirit, actually, as far as I'm concerned, was really developed in Northern Ireland, which surprises many people because the country is reputed for violence in the name of Christianity, basically, between Protestants and Catholics. And I grew up in one of the hot spots my parents, my father, ran one of these stores that sold everything from furniture to clothing and, and so on. And he employed, as far as he could, equally from both sides of the community, which meant his business got bombed several times. My brother was nearly killed. Mm-hmm. And I asked him- When you say both
0: sides, you mean Protestants and I Catholics. do,
1: I do, yeah. yes. Uh, because it did nothing. In my reading of it all, it had nothing to do with genuine Christianity. Because Christ told people not to take weapons to defend them. Well, that's another story. (laughs) But Dad insisted on employing people. And his reason for doing so was that famous statement in Genesis that God made humans, male and female, in his image. And he said, look, Every man and woman is made in the image of God, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm going to treat them like that. It's a bit like Jordan Peterson, actually, in his lectures on Genesis. He came across that statement, and he stopped, and he said, that's the cornerstone of Western civilization. Then he said, man, you're neglected at your peril. And that impressed me deeply. The second thing that was wonderful was Dad was... One of these people who'd loved to have been a scholar, never got the chance of higher education, so he encouraged me greatly. But the great thing was, although he was a deeply committed Christian, as was my mother, he allowed me to think. He gave me space. So when I got to Cambridge in 1962, I wasn't loaded with the baggage. So many of my contemporaries, once they got out of home in Northern Ireland, they left any kind of commitment to Christianity behind because it had never been thought through, but my father encouraged me not only to think through Christianity, but other worldviews as well. So that was a wonderful preparation. And at school still, I had a friend who was older than I was, already at university when I was towards the end of school, and he and I used to read a lot of books together, even tackling things like Alfred North Whitehead, it was jolly difficult, but we came across this author, Robert E.D. Clarke, in his book, series of books, but one that stands out was The Universe Planner Accident. And he raised questions about whether or not science could give us some indicators as to the provenance of the universe and the cosmos. And This fascinated me because I was always interested in the big questions. Mathematics, where does it fit in science, where does science fit? In our search for truth. And I was a very curious boy, very curious, interested in everything. Wanted to be a classicist first, then a modern linguist, then an electrical engineer. I became a ham radio operator very young and ended up being a mathematician, so interested in most things. But when I went to Cambridge, I read a great deal of Lewis. My father introduced me to C.S. Lewis and there was something about the logic of his argument, particularly in books like Mere Christianity, that sparked my mind off. And I came to a very deep, settled conviction for one of that age that Christianity was not only true but was defensible. And when I got to university, I realized that for the first time I was in not in the kind of Fraught religious culture of Northern Ireland, but in a much more open culture. And I thought, what I really want to do now is test what I believed against other people's convictions. So I set out in week one, Cambridge, never forget it, to befriend, and I would emphasize that, people that did not share my worldview. I've been doing it ever since. So that'll tell you quite a bit about what makes me tick and um, life has gone on and I've tried to do that even in public befriend (laughs) some fairly difficult people, but there, (laughs) there we are. Well, so
0: when we were having lunch earlier, we got into a very interesting conversation about you discovering that questioning evolution was taboo. Yes, I did. Um, And you talked about Fred Hoyle, and then you talked about a number of other people. Now, probably most listeners aren't going to know who Fred Hoyle was, but he was a very committed atheist who was also extremely skeptical about a number of conventional explanations because he was a mathematician.
1: That's right.
0: And as a mathematician, he said, well, this Darwinism dog doesn't hunt.
1: Yeah, that's right. And Fred Hoyle was a Cambridge astrophysicist, mm. and very famous, and many people believe, including me, although I don't know all the details, that he should have won the Nobel well Prize for mm. his prediction of the resonance of carbon. And actually, it was, it was that uh, fine-tuning discovery that led him to say, nothing shook my atheism as much as the discovery that where, where does all the carbon come from? You see, you could, need a, a resonance.
0: Could you explain, and just in 30 seconds, what like what, can you unpack that just a, a bit the, the fine tuning of carbon?
1: Well, it was just that the, there's a lot of carbon in the universe and it's needed for life. And Hoyle had worked out that he wondered where it all came from, and he discovered that. You would only get it if you had certain factors in a very narrow band. Certain constants had to be exactly right. And he predicted that, but he didn't find it. Someone else found it. Oh, okay. Hoyle should have got the Nobel Prize, but he never did, they say, because he was a fairly irascible character. I I met him. I I discussed these things with him on, on one occasion. But the very interesting thing was uh, I remember coming to Cardiff and he gave a, a, a lecture and he said, look, I've done the calculations on this. It was quite obvious that the neo-Darwinian solution can't really, doesn't work, uh, granted the current uh, figures for the age of the earth, but uh, in those days it was 15 billion or something like this. And he said, I've worked it, it just uh, doesn't work. Uh, Rabbits come from rabbits. Uh, Neo-Darwinism works in the small, but it doesn't work in the large. And I've calculated that life didn't start on Earth, so it started somewhere else, and it probably came in on ice particles or something like this, which just shifts the problem further back. So Hoyle and his fellow worker, Chandra Wickramasinghe, who was a colleague of mine, and I knew Chandra well, they were very sceptical of Darwinism. And I'd met this I met it at various stages in life that there was a mathematical scepticism. Uh, the Wistar, the famous Wistar Institute, I think it was 1958, where a meeting between mathematicians and biologists, where the mathematicians challenged the biologists with various questions and weren't at all satisfied with the answers. And uh, I read that
0: book. It, it, was, it was almost a circus.
1: Oh, it was a circus. It was, oh dear. It was very disappointing actually, that book, but that built up and I I met mathematicians, some of them, most of them, atheists, who would ask me, did I believe in neo-Darwinism? And I'd say, I'm not a biologist, but I'm very skeptical. So are we, glad to meet somebody who's skeptical. Hmm. And I discovered gradually that R.E.D. Clarke, the man whose books I met in school and who I got to know in Cambridge, was pushing out the envelope by raising questions about Darwinism. He wrote a book about it called Darwin Before or After and he wrote down his scepticism and of course I expected atheists to disagree with him but within the UK there were many Christians who who felt that this was the way to go, that God made things to make themselves kind of stuff and uh, I remember very well going to a conference where a number of these leading biologists were present discussing this. And I put up my hand at a suitable point in the Q&A and said, "Look, I'm not a biologist, but I'd love to know what is your top piece of evidence for neo-Darwinism." And the discomfort was palpable. That one man said, "Well, the peppered moth And I was staggered. I'd read quite a lot about the peppered moth that I have done since, and I said, look, is that really the best you can do? Is that it? And they said, yes, that was it. Well, I said, don't be surprised then if people like me are sceptical, because that's clearly only cyclic change. It didn't change moths into anything else, it just changed the proportion of moths, and that's not surprising. Darwin observed things like that brilliantly.
0: It was an experiment that changed the number of white moths versus dark-colored moths. Yeah, that's right. It it didn't produce new species or anything of the sort. No, no, no.
1: And someone in this college was associated with it, actually, uh, originally. And that really deepened my skepticism. And I began to wonder, why aren't you allowed to ask questions? Later... uh, In Oxford here, that was many years later, I heard a Nobel Prize winner says, you dare not, you must not ask questions about evolution. And I heard myself saying, rather too loudly in the lecture, don't question Newton, don't question Einstein, but science proceeds by asking questions, why is this taboo? And Perry, I think the only answer I can give to it is this, that the neo Darwinian theory is in a unique position in terms of science. It's the only theory I know of where you can get a lot of it by deducing it straight from the worldview, the atheistic worldview of Lucretius. And he wrote about it amazingly. His book, De Rerum Natura, The Nature of the Physical Universe, develops most of the ideas that Darwin got, except perhaps the transmutation of species. And he develops them from assuming an atheistic worldview. And I could see that that makes sense. If I'm asked to wear an atheist hat, which I try to do a lot of the time to see where people are coming from, and I'm asked to write about the origin and development of life, of course I'll develop a theory of evolution. It's the only possibility, and that's dangerous. Because if your worldview is a priori, which it is for some scientists, Richard Lewontin is the most famous, the geneticist from Harvard, who said he's not compelled by the methods of science to accept a materialistic worldview. He said, we must start with it because, and here's the honesty which I admire, we must not let a divine foot in the door. But of course, if you start by assuming that, that's as far as you rise. In other words, you're intellectually closed. And things like that grew in me where I would meet people, and they would even tell me to shut up, raising questions about this, which just struck me as profoundly anti-scientific. Because the people I have a difficulty with in raising my questions are not scientists in general. They're Christians who are scientists, and that's different.
0: So it's, it, can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's very It's very interesting. <laughs> the problem... I suppose is this, that some Christians feel that it's doing a disservice to Christianity to query a mainline, what they regard as an absolutely central mainline scientific theory because you're going to appear as anti-science. But you see, we now live in the day when Barbara McClintock and Jim Shapiro and Dennis Noble, and a whole cadre of top-line intellectual biologists are querying it. Mm -hmm. And that, to my mind, is, of course, enormously refreshing, but it just shows how risky it is to shut down discussion. So, in your book, Cosmic Chemistry,
0: you lay out When you get about to the middle of the book, you start laying out some problems with the standard biological views, and then a few chapters later, you start talking about the people that you just mentioned—people like Barbara McClintock and James Shapiro—and people like that. And you and and myself, yes. And you've begun by showing there's. There's a whole bunch of problems with the standard view. And then I I guess I would summarize that next set of chapters as saying, the level of engineering and complexity that we do know that enables adaptation is so far beyond any human technology or anything that we currently understand that it appears as though we're, we're sitting here with 1% one percent answers and ninety-nine percent unanswered questions.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right, and I'm in the business of preferring an explanation that makes sense over one that doesn't make sense, and unless someone demonstrates that uh, simplistic notions of um, laws and uh, and uh, some sort of randomness factored in can produce. Not simply complexity, but it's the kind of complexity we're facing with. And it's a language-like complexity. Hence the almost wholesale takeover of computer language for biological research. And that's an indicator to my mind. What we're discussing when we're dealing with genetics is very long words. And six segments of very long words. And what amuses me a little bit... And I often put it to to people, I I, I say to folks, look, what do you do science with? Uh, And they say, well, they usually don't say their mind because they don't believe in the mind. They say their brain. Mm. I say, okay, what's the short story about the brain? Well, it's the end product of mindless, unguided process. And I say, and you trust it, do you? And they pause for a moment. I said, tell me honestly, if you knew that your computer that you use every day was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? Now here's the interesting thing. I've always got the answer, no. Well, And I said, now, you've got a problem, especially you if you're studying DNA, as many of them are. Here you have a, a, a word, 3.4 billion letters, long, roughly speaking. And you tell me, the moment you see a short word, four letters, E-X-I-T, above a door, you will say, yes, there are uh, mechanical processes, automatic processes behind that, but there's a mind behind it. Why don't you say the same thing for DNA? There's something illogical going on. So what I'm not excluding is the use of all kinds of complex mechanisms that are out there. And... uh, people like Dennis Noble and Jim Shapiro are finding those out, like natural genetic engineering, all that kind of concept. which is utterly fascinating. But what that simply reveals is that the whole thing has levels of linguistic sophistication that go way beyond simply C, G, A, A, C, G, T in the DNA molecule, which should in itself be enough Mm-hmm. To point the finger towards an intelligent input, and uh, where I sit is this: it has seemed to me since I was a boy, that it is, and literally so, teenager, that it is scientifically legitimate to ask the question: Could you have scientific information, uh, scientific evidence for an input or involvement of information in a black box? And I find most scientists will agree with that. But when it comes to the universe and the genetics of the universe, then the fun starts because (laughs) uh, people have a priori often excluded. And it's back to Aristotle, you see. You get rid of any kind of teleology, the teleology of mind, because you're only allowed to give explanation in terms of the laws of nature and uh, various kinds of process and i say that's desperately limiting Mm -hmm. and at the heart of it all of course is the unsolved problem from a scientific perspective of the origin of information and we're no nearer; to we're much further away from that than we were in 1953 when uri and miller got the nobel prize for apparently solving it which they hadn't
0: which they had not right So, you've had many, many, many faith conversations with many kinds of people, and... Sorry, what kind of conversations? Faith faith conversations. Oh, yes. I do, but
1: before you go into that, I find all conversations in this area are faith conversations, because it's the battle of two faiths. If you see what I mean. Oh. people Sometimes phone me up from the BBC here, they say, we'd like to talk about faith schools, and I say, well, all schools are faith schools, and they say, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, I said, you know, you go into an ordinary secular school, and they're pumping out atheism and so on. That's a faith position. Oh, we didn't mean that. Oh, I said, well, what do you think faith is? Oh, it's a religious view. I said, absolute nonsense. Faith is an ordinary word, and it applies to what you believe, and I've written about this all over the place. The the mess you get into if you follow the new atheist line of thinking that defines faith to be a religious um, attitude, which means believing where there's no evidence. So you get Dawkins saying atheists have no faith, and that's in a 400 page book where he's writing about what he believes is faith. So. Most of my conversations are faith conversations, and a lot of them are geared to try to get people to see that their atheism is a belief system. It is a faith system, as is my Christianity. So the point is, with which of those belief systems does science fit best? That's the key question.
0: Yes, yes. Yes. You know, all all scientific theorems are based on faith in something. Absolutely. All all mathematical propositions are based in, mathematicians call them axioms.
1: Yes, they do, and uh, mathematics, uh, somebody once says, if if you define a religion as something that has to be taken on faith, then mathematics is the only religion that can prove it's a religion.
0: That's exactly right. Like, God was at
1: the heart of that. Of course.
0: You you didn't, and I, like I have to be very like you didn't just say that to be funny.
1: No, you're completely serious. I'm completely serious. Yes, I'm glad you said that. I, I um, am serious. Yes.
0: So there's a verse in the Apocrypha in the in Wisdom of Solomon that says, "Thou hast ordered all things in weight, and number, and measure." And what does a statement like that say to a mathematician who believes that we live in a divinely architected universe?
1: Well, uh, I like questions like that for the simple reason that if I'm asked, why do you as a mathematician believe in God? from the mathematical perspective, it's because mathematics works. That is the huge thing. And I think Einstein, who was very bright as we know, he could see there was a problem. Uh, And he said the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. And as you probably know, a fellow Nobel Prize winner, Eugene Wigner, wrote a Mm. very famous paper in 1961 called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And he calls it a miracle that we don't deserve, but he called it the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. I join issue with that because I say, yes, it is unreasonable if you're an atheist, Mm. but it's perfectly reasonable as The pioneers of modern science all believed, and here's something I feel is very important, the the notion that there is a strong link between uh, the Judeo-Christian monotheism and the rise of modern science. With Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Faraday, Clark Maxwell, all of them believing in God, there is a connection. And I often say to people, look, Their faith in God didn't hinder their science. It actually was the motor that drove it because it sits perfectly well together. And that's where I'm coming from. Here's a mathematician and she's thinking in here. She comes up with an equation and lo and behold it describes something out there. How does that work? Well, one hypothesis that makes a lot of sense to me is that the universe out there and her mind in here is ultimately traceable to the same intelligent God. That works. But if you start going down uh, the logical end of an atheistic view, it seems to me that what you do is what Lewis predicted you did. You remove not only science, but all rationality. And it was the chemist, and I think he probably was an atheist, J.B.S. Haldane, who said it beautifully. If I believe that the thoughts in my brain are simply the random motions of atoms, then I have no reason to believe that my brain is composed of atoms. This is extreme (laughs) reductionism, Yes. and I am an anti-reductionist. Not so much because I'm a Christian, although that would be true by definition, but because I'm a scientist.
0: I think we have plenty of evidence that the atheist way of looking in the world leads to believing that absurd. So you have junk DNA, we had for decades. Yes, absolutely. Being insisted that 97% of our DNA is junk, it turns out that was a horrible theory. Yes. And then there's also the junk universes, like, well, there's 10 to the 500 oh, universes. The, the, mul- and, the
1: multiverse theory, Yeah. And we're in the
0: lucky one. Yes, that's right. Right,
1: and so you science ends up
0: running aground when you don't start with a a totality of a belief of of reason and rationality. Like you, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we believe that there is a ultimately rational mind behind the universe that we live in. And so we expect to, every time there's a mystery, we expect it to be the answer to be orderly, systematic, rational and discoverable.
1: I think the key question to ask of any worldview is if you believe in rational investigation, what are your grounds for trusting rationality? Mm. And Lewis has a wonderful statement, I can't remember it completely offhand, but I've got it in my book where he says people concentrate on using their thinking but they don't think about thinking Mm. and any theory that invalidates thinking cannot be true because you've used thought to get there Mm. and it's on that he builds up this whole thing that parallels so wonderfully with Darwin's doubt that is Darwin's famous doubt expressed in a in a letter where he said he often had this horrible doubt that the thoughts in his mind which had been developed from mind of lower animals could come to any, and I'm paraphrasing here, any true conclusions because he wondered whether uh, there were any thoughts in a monkey's mind, you see. Now, what weighs with me very heavily is that that argument was picked up by C.S. Lewis. It was later picked up by Alvin Plantinga, Mm. both of whom are Christians. But in recent days, Thomas Nagel, who's a really heavyweight philosopher, has seen it. And he's an atheist, a strong atheist. He doesn't want there to be a god, as he explicitly has published. But he said, if evolutionary naturalism is true, then thinking goes. It undermines it. So something must be wrong. Now he, to be fair to him, he thinks there's going to be a naturalistic explanation. The planting it says the man ought to be a Christian, but he's not got there yet.
0: I asked you at lunch, how long did it take you to write Cosmic Chemistry, and you said, "Well, really, fifty years." When you sat down and you started formally working on this book, can you describe the person that you were writing the book to?
1: Yes. Well, fifty years. Yes and no. I. This book has grown out of another book, which was my first attempt in this field, and it's called God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God? Now that book over the years has gone into a number of languages, and I've received a lot of comments on it, plus and minus, and I've noticed particularly the, the negative ones, and put them right over the years. But I felt it was getting dated. It's been out 15, 16 years. I can't remember when, when it came out And I was beginning to think that some things needed revising. And the trigger for it was Stephen Hawking's death. Mm -hmm. I've written a book called God and Stephen Hawking, whose Mm -hmm. design is it anyway. And when he died, the publisher said, would you like to update it? Because he published some stuff after his death and and so on. So I, I did that. And then I thought, dare I have a look at, God's Undertaker, science buried God, shall I update it? So I tried to, and then I thought, no, this is no good. Because in the meantime, the major thing i come across was the third wave of biology, the Shapiro, Noble, all that kind of stuff. So I thought, no, I'll write it from scratch, more or less. It didn't incorporate some of the other stuff, but it's 50% longer. And I hope Uh, much more comprehensive in its approach. And I was simply writing, well, let's see. I felt that not many people, even scientists to whom I talked, now I need to be very careful here because I'm not a biologist. I'm very interested in it. I go to seminars on it. I've read all kinds of books on it. I have a huge library. And I understand a little bit, but I'm not a trained biologist. But what I discovered was, Many of the biologists even that I asked about this had never heard of it. And secondly, the Christians often, in as much as they interacted with biology, were simply sitting on the kind of neo-Darwinian legacy without any questions. And I should say, Perry, to you there, that uh, I've had several conversations with Francis Collins about this, Mm -hmm. and from where I said, God can do it any way He likes, but it's for science to tease out what actually happened. And I want to know what people are thinking, you see. And so I thought, with all this new stuff, I would like to make my fellow Christians aware of it, especially those who are not happy with the stop, peppered moth answer, which is still floating around. Yes, I mean, right? it's, it's unbelievable. So I started writing, and I got very excited about it. And then I came across your book, and I thought, things are happening. Something's happening out there. So can I make a credible shot of this and uh, publish it? So mainly, in a way, I wanted to help my fellow Christians think these things through, but I also wanted to explain for people who weren't convinced Christians, that there's something in this kind of case for an intelligent God behind the universe, that it's not a trivial case. And it is therefore worth revisiting what motivated the early scientists doing their stuff. Perhaps history will turn a bit in a full circle. So multi-purpose, and it remains to be seen. As you say, I've only just had my coffees. <laughs>
0: It's an extraordinary book. Um, I I was corresponding with somebody just the other day, not a religious guy, but he said, so what are some other books? He liked Evolution 2.0, and he said, what are some other books that I should read? And I said, well, you should definitely read Cosmic Chemistry. There's very few books that explain some of this new third way biology in ways that regular people can understand. Most of them are at the PhD level. Yeah, that's right. And and that's, you know, God bless the PhDs for doing their job, but regular people need explanations. And, then, and there's a lot more in your book than just that, like a lot. I mean, there are, if you want a book that you can sink your teeth into, that's gonna give you things to think about for a very long time, it is a marvelous book, and um, you know it came out a couple weeks ago. Like well, I got, I, I got to get over to see John when I'm in Oxford because this is just too good to keep secrets. So thank you for this a very well-researched, clearly years of scholarship. Congratulations! Thank you for writing it.
1: Well, thank you so much for your interest in it, which has done a lot to spur me on in, in doing it, and. It's exciting now at last to, to have met someone who has actually been a genuine inspiration to me in what you think and in the way you think. So, thank you too. And you know, what encourages me about this people say, but you're a mathematician, you shouldn't be writing about these things. <laughs> but you see, that, that to my mind is nonsense. You know, from Darwin to Dawkins, people have written to catch the public imagination. And I'm a great believer in the public understanding of science, that people are often very much brighter than we think and and are interested in these things. Yes, they are. And it seems to me to be a, a very legitimate activity to think things through and to get them out without compromising their intellectual providence or validity, but to get them out in ways that people, ah, I get it. You want to give people an aha moment uh, when they read some of this stuff. And, And that's the business I'm in. It is in a way communication, but I hope it's faithful communication. Yes, excellent, thank you. Pleasure.
0: Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.